Now the talk this evening is about enriching your life. Everybody wants to be rich. Why do you want to be rich? Because we think that richness can buy us happiness. In fact, there's many meanings to being rich. You can have rich in money, but isn't it more important to be rich in time? Rich in happiness? Rich in friends? Sometimes we need to know what's really important in life when we know, want to know what richness is. So this evening I'm going to be talking about becoming enriched in many different levels, many different ways. Because one of the reasons why Buddhism is growing in the West, the fastest growing religion in so many countries, I was being asked this on the way here, is because the practices of Buddhism, if it's chanting, or keeping precepts, or meditating, or the wisdom teachings, they actually help people become better people, happier people, richer in those human qualities of kindness, generosity, charity, forgiveness, all those wonderful qualities which make our life rich. And because that Buddhism can actually give the goods produce the goods, that's why it's becoming very popular in, the, in our world. There's many stories of actually people who, when they come across Buddhism, they actually change and become better people. I was telling some people this afternoon that one of our, our members, uh, quite a devoted member now, he, he was a Sri Lankan man who we call in Australia Waisak Buddhists. We call them Waisak Buddhists because that's the only time they come to the temple on Waisak once a year. <laughs> but he'd always come to our temple on Waisak every year. But he started coming regularly. And when I asked him why, this was his story. He said he worked for the Department of Minerals and Energy in Perth. He was an engineer and his boss was an Australian man who was so harsh and unforgiving. He would demand so much work from this Sri Lankan engineer, much more than anybody can do. And when he'd try really hard to do that work, he'd always be criticised, never thanked for his extra effort. He was what's called the boss from hell. And I think many of you might know a boss from hell. <laughs> and anyway, he noticed that his boss in the space of only six months, changed from being a boss from hell to being a boss from heaven. This boss changed to being so nice, so calm, so understanding, that when he gave him work, he asked, can you do this, is it too much? He was always praising this man for extra effort and extra work. Because he was such a nice boss, actually this Sri Lankan wanted to work harder for him. But this Sri Lankan man couldn't help but asking his boss, how come you've changed? If you don't mind me saying, you used to be a terrible boss before, but now you're very nice. What have you been doing? And this Australian man said, I found this wonderful temple in Perth, this wonderful Buddhist temple which teaches meditation and wisdom teachings. He said, hang on, that's my temple. <laughs> And when he saw what happens when you listen to good teachings, when you practice good teachings, how it helps you in your life, then he started coming regularly. He comes every week now and hangs out there to look after the monks because he sees that 
the practice actually does enrich your life. Even another story just to indicate how it enriches your life. There's one of our, <coughs> our members, they always wanted to do one of these meditation retreats, which you have in Malaysia and KL as well. He always wanted to do the meditation retreat, which they held in Perth on the weekends. But his wife said, no darling, you can't go on the weekend meditation retreat. That's the time when we do our shopping. You've got all your odd jobs to do in the house. We've got to take the children to sport. We've got to do so many things. You've got to do the gardening. It's too busy on the weekend. No, you can't go. So he said, okay dear, I won't go. But the next time there was a retreat, he asked again, can I go on the retreat dear? He said, no you can't go. It's too busy on the weekend. But he kept on asking. Because he was so persistent, one retreat came up, he said, Dear, can I go on the meditation retreat? And she got so upset, she said, Okay, you go on that retreat. You leave me with all the children, with the shopping, with the odd jobs, with the gardening, with taking them here, taking you go. So he went. <laughs> she was so upset that he went. But after two days of meditation, of learning Dharma, practicing Dharma. When he came back after that retreat, he was such a nice husband. He was so soft and you know, compliant, bendable. And so, <laughs> he was so nice that she was really impressed. She was so impressed that when it came time for the next week weekend retreat, he didn't even need to ask. She gave him the money and sent him off. <laughs> And that's a true story, because these practices actually help you to become a better human being, a happier human being, a richer human being. For example, we started off by teaching you or giving you the five precepts, but so many people, they might take those five precepts but not understand why you should be keeping them. I've been telling the story many years ago when I was teaching a meditation retreat which was next to a church in Perth. And on the Sunday morning while I was waiting for someone to come into the interview, I looked through the window and saw these two Australian men who'd just been into church and one said to the other as they were parting, be good. And the other man said, no, that's no fun. <laughs> And isn't it strange that people in the world think to have fun you have to be bad. To have fun you have to do naughty things. To happy have fun you have to break all the rules. And a lot of time people don't understand that if you want to have a good time, what should you do? Be good. If you're a good person you have a good time. And this is I'm going to teach you now about the meaning of the five precepts. Many years ago, there were two monks in Thailand. They were going to a dana in a person's house. This is where people offer food to the monks and make them fat. <laughs> people give us so much food. I try to go on a diet, but I can't do it. Because I go to people's house, they offer me so, and they want me to eat it all as well. My goodness, it's hard being mine. That's why I don't own my stomach anymore. I give my stomach to you. You can put whatever you want into it. I've given up. <laughs> Call letting go. 
Now one of the troubles why monks are so fat, because they don't worry enough. Because when you worry a lot, you get thin, you know, you get very skinny. Because we don't worry very much, that's why we get fat. <laughs> but anyway, they were going to this monk, this person's house for dana, and they were waiting for things to get ready, and they were waiting in the room there. And in this house, they had an aquarium, you know, where you keep fish. And one monk turned around to the other and said, this isn't compassionate. This isn't Buddhist. This isn't right to keep fish in an aquarium, in a tank. It's like putting the fish in a prison, isn't it? It's putting them in jail. They can't swim wherever they want to go. They said this isn't fair. What have the fish done to be put in this small cage for the rest of their life? Even in our society, if we put someone in jail, it's only for a few years and then we let them loose, but not a fish in a chair. Fish in an aquarium, it's a life sentence. And the other monk, who happened to be a very wise monk, said, you don't understand. It's much better being a fish in a tank than being a fish who's free to swim in the rivers and the lakes of the world. I'll tell you why. Because a fish in a tank, in an aquarium, is freed from so many dangers and difficulties. Think. Have you ever seen a fisherman dropping a line in somebody's fish tank in their house? <laughs> I've never seen it. I don't think they can do that. So that's the first thing. The fish in the tank are free from the danger of fishermen. Think what it's like being a fish in the wild. You might see a nice juicy worm, but you never know whether there's a hook in it or not. Because in your experience of swimming in the lakes and the rivers, sometimes you see some of your friends, your fellow fish, maybe your brothers and sisters, gulp down a nice juicy worm and suddenly they get pulled upwards to disappear from your life forever. Oh, it's so dangerous being a fish. You never know what you can eat and what you can't eat. In fact, it's so dangerous that fish have got anxiety complexes about food. Because <laughs> they never know what they can eat, what they can't eat, what's dangerous and what... That's why many fish are anorexic. <laughs> it's true, you know, because they're psychotic these days. They see, eating is fraught with so much danger these days. There's so many people fishing these days that they don't know what, what food is safe or isn't. But a fish in a tank, they can eat without any fear. Imagine going to a restaurant. You don't know whether it's going to be your last meal or not. Would you be able to enjoy your food? No, you get indigestion at the very least. So, <laughs> fish in a tank are free from indigestion. They can eat very easily. That's the first freedom. They're free from the danger of fishermen. Number two, have you ever seen an owner of a fish tank put fish in the same tank to eat each other? They never put cannibal fish in the same tank. But out in the wild, it's very dangerous. It's not just the danger from fishermen, it's the danger from bigger fish who can eat you. And you know these days that it's getting so bad in the rivers and lakes that some fish don't feel safe, you know, swimming up some dark creeks at night. <laughs> it's so dangerous because there's big fish lurking there. So, so, in a tank, in an aquarium, that's the second freedom. You're free from the danger of big fish eating you. Number three, in a fish tank, you are free from the danger of heat and cold. 
Because out in the wild, sometimes it gets very hot and the fish have got nowhere to go. Haven't seen air, ACs, air conditioners in the lakes and the rivers. And sometimes it gets so cold. In some parts of the world, the lakes freeze over with ice. And these poor fish have got no jumpers and all he has to put on. They have to endure the cold and the heat. But in a fish tank, they've got the same temperature all year round, day and night. It's warm to be just right. And it is like living in an air-conditioned hotel room. You don't have to worry about the danger of heat and cold. And also, you don't have to worry about the danger of hunger. Because in, in the wild, sometimes fish have to go without food for days. But in a fish tank, somebody brings fish to the top of your tank two times a day. It's like having takeaway food brought to your house every day. You don't even need to buy it or cook it. Isn't that wonderful? So fish in the tank are free from the danger of hunger. They get free takeaway. And lastly, whenever fish in the wild get sick and get ill, they've got no one to help them. But fish in the tank, when they get sick, their owner will get a fish doctor to come and help them. They've got free health insurance for the tank. In fact, all the doctors, they come on house calls. The fish don't even need to go to the clinic. So the fish in the, t- the, fish in the tank are free from the danger of ill health. So the fish in the tank are free from so many dangers. They're free from the danger of fishermen, free from the danger of big fish, free from the danger of heat and cold, hunger and ill health. So which fish would you like to be? And this monk said, this is the same when people keep their precepts. If you live in the cage, in the tank of your precepts, it does mean there's many places in the world where you can't swim. (laughs) There's many places where you can't go. There's many things which you can't do. But by keeping your precepts, you're free from so many dangers. That's why you give up the freedom to do what you want by keeping precepts, but you become free from so many dangers, free from so many difficulties, free from so much suffering. That is why people keep precepts. They're free from so many dangers. So when we understand like why we're good, because it's a trade-off. It's a trade-off between the, the pleasures of doing what you like and the pleasures of freedom from problems and troubles. That's why the Buddha kept on saying, if you keep your precepts, actually you don't have a hard time, you have a happy time. That's why I keep telling people that I'm keeping heaps of precepts, 227 precepts and a lot more. I think the more the merrier. Give me more precepts. <laughs> because they keep you happy. I've been telling a story to many people. I told it last night uh, in the the Klang Centre, but I'm going to tell it again because many people didn't hear the story about the danger of drinking. Because that's one of the precepts which many people break. And I'm telling the story of this man in Sydney who was drinking and he was driving on his way home 
And if you drink and drive in Australia and you get caught by the police, you're in big trouble. The same in Malaysia, I've heard. And this man had been drinking. He was driving home. He thought he'd be safe, but he came to a police roadblock. The police were checking everybody to see how much they'd been drinking. There was no way out. Actually, another disciple of mine, she'd just come from Thailand, she got stopped by the police as well. And the policeman asked her, have you been drinking? She said, yes. So they gave her the breath test. It was zero. She said, what have you been drinking? She said, orange juice. See? <laughs> She'd only just come from Thailand. She's telling the truth. The policeman was very upset. Get out of here. He said, that's true, she told me that. Because she didn't know good English, she didn't know what it meant. But anyway, this particular, <laughs> this particular man was in big trouble. He was queuing up in line, there was no escape. He thought he was really done for. When it came to his turn, he got out of the car to blow into the tube. And he couldn't believe his luck. Because before he was handed the tube, there was a sound of a crash. A rear-end collision up the road. Because it was a roadblock, one car had been going too fast and hadn't seen the roadblock. And had banged into the back of another car. And the policeman told this man, Sir, get in your car and go home. It's more important that I look after this accident than I test your blood alcohol level. He thought he was so lucky, came so close to getting caught. He was out of the car, waiting to breathe into the tube. Because of the accident... He could go home. The next morning, he was awakened to someone ringing his doorbell at his home. He dressed quickly and went downstairs, and he opened his door to see two big Sydney policemen standing outside. At first he was afraid, but then he thought, I'm not driving now, they can't arrest me for what I did last night. So he decided not to be afraid. And the policemen weren't going to arrest him, at least not yet. All they did was to ask him, Sir, can we look in your garage? He said, Yes, you can look in my garage, no problem there. So he opened his garage doors. And as soon as he opened those doors, he almost died of shock. Because in his garage, it wasn't his car there, it was a police car. <laughs> He'd been so drunk, and they said, Get in your car and go home. He got in the wrong car, didn't he? <laughs> And at the road one, they had an extra car, and they were missing one. So they soon traced it. Oh, he was in big trouble. Big. <laughs> so that's the dangers of drinking. You don't even know which car is yours. You get in the wrong one and drive it home. And sometimes it's a police car. That's a big mistake. <laughs> so that's the dangers of drinking. So if you don't drink and you keep your precepts, you can live a richer life, a happier life. People can trust you. You know, on that subject, I gave up drinking alcohol as a student at Cambridge. I started getting interested in Buddhism, and I thought it wasn't actually right to actually to drink. I didn't know it was against the precepts, but I thought it didn't make sense. So I gave up drinking. It was a great sacrifice for me. Because at that time, even though I wasn't didn't want to drink. I still wanted to chase girls. I was a young man. I wasn't born a monk. <laughs> so I wanted to go to parties and dances. And I thought that if you give up drinking, especially you know, in the West, 
that you would never get invited to any more parties. And that's what I expected. But the opposite was true. When you do good, you always get good results. I was actually invited to even more parties. You know why? Because they wanted somebody sober to drive them home. That was me. <laughs> so if you give up alcohol, you actually get more popular. <laughs> and I can enjoy myself even more. So there's no reason why you can't give up. keep the five precepts. If you keep the five precepts, you become trustworthy, uh, you don't waste all your money on stupid things, and you become a happier person. That's why we've got like our happiness level. Our happiness level is like, like the tide in the sea, like the level of the ocean. Sure, as you've got waves, you get highs and lows in life, but as you keep more precepts, your average happiness level goes up. You become a happier person when you're a good person. You ask the people who you think are happy in life, you find all the happy people are the good people. That's what we mean by enriching our life, enriching our happiness quotient. Now we've got IQ, I have HQ. It doesn't mean the headquarters, it means your happiness quotient. To see who's the happiest person in the world. Now in the world, we measure richness usually by how much money you've got. But that's not the way of Buddhism. You may all know that the Buddha said that contentment is the highest wealth, is the highest richness. That's why I always ask people, who's the wealthiest person in the world? Who's the richest person in the world? And it's not Bill Gates. It's not the Sultan of Brunei. It's not the owner of Walmart. The richest people in the world you'll find in monasteries, people like me, because I'm content. <laughs> and I'm really upset that Forbes magazine never put me in the list of the richest people. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? Contentment is the highest happiness in Switzerland. Because doesn't that make you happy to be content? I've seen many rich people in the world and one of the rich people I knew in Perth, they had this huge mansion in Perth by the river. I went to do a blessing ceremony in their house. And this is a true story. I asked to go to the washroom, to the toilet. They had to draw me a map to get there. <laughs> it was such a big house. <laughs> it's true, they drew me a map. And when I, I found out that this lady lived all alone in this big mansion. She had no friends. She was afraid of her family, that they were going to somehow sort of kill her to get the inheritance or try and ask for money from her. She was even afraid for, of me because I might ask her for a donation for my temple. That's why rich people don't even like monks. Because they think that monks are coming there not to be friends, but to ask for something. So that's one of the problems about being wealthy in the world. And how much money do you need? There's a story of the Mexican fisherman. Once there was a fisherman in Mexico who came in just before lunch with his morning catch. On the dock was an American on holiday, on vacation, in this very beautiful fishing village. After the Mexican had unloaded his catch, he went up, the, the American went up to the, uh, the Mexican and said, I am a professor of business studies from Harvard. I'm on vacation here. I've seen you've come back very early in the day. You shouldn't be so lazy. 
you should stay out later in the day and then you can make more money. And the Mexican said, Senor, I'm happy with what I've got. I have enough fish now to feed my family and also to buy a few extra little bits for my family. Now I will have lunch with my wife. After lunch I'll have a little siesta. In the afternoon I'll play with my children. In the evening after dinner I'll go out to the cantina to play a bit of, ca- bit of guitar with my friends. Life is good, I have enough. But the professor wouldn't accept that. He said, listen to me, I've got a free business plan for you. You stay out in the afternoon, come back late in the evening and you'll get catch twice as many fish, maybe three times as many fish. After about six months with the extra profits, you'll be able to hire some crew. And with that crew, you'll be able to catch even more fish. In about a year or two years, you'll have enough money to buy a much bigger boat than this one with all the crew. In about three or four years, you'll be able to buy your second boat. And then about seven or eight years, you'll probably have a whole fleet of fishing boats if you follow this plan. And then you'll be able to move your business headquarters to L.A. And then once you move your business headquarters to L.A., you can diversify into different different operations. As a CEO, you can award yourself a big salary. You can float your company on the stock market and award yourself lots of stock options. And when the sort of the company does well, you can sell all your stock stock options and get a golden handshake which your own board gives you. You can be a multi-millionaire. I would say in about ten years, you can be have so many millions of dollars. I know this because I'm a professor of business studies. That's how we do things in the U.S. And this fisherman was listening very patiently, and he said, "But, Signor, with all those millions of dollars, then what would I do?" You know, professors of business studies, they don't know. They never think the business plan out that far. (laughs) Just making money. What did you do with it afterwards? And the professor thought a while. He said, well, with all that money, you can retire. You can retire to a nice, pretty fishing village like this. Buy yourself a small boat. Now go out in the morning just to catch a few fish. You can have lunch with your wife every day. Have a siesta after. In the afternoon, you can play with your children. You're free. And in the evening, you can spend every evening in the canteen with your friends. <laughs> and he said, but senor, I do that already. <laughs> now isn't that saying what richness is in life? Sometimes we work so hard to live like poor people. Because <laughs> poor people are rich in time. And they've got lots of time for their family and friends. And this is what we really mean by how to be rich in our world. You do need money, that's an extreme. But you do need money, but don't you need happiness as well and time with your children? When I was in Singapore recently, in the newspapers, a young boy jumped out of his apartment and killed himself. His suicide note was in the Straits Times. It read, I just wanted to have dinner with my mother and father once a week. And he never had time with his parents. Those parents were rich in money, but poor in time. So we have to understand, like in Buddhism, like in real life, any religion, what's really important in life. Another story of a, of a business professor, this was a very smart one. 
He went to the class in the morning in the university and instead of reading out his normal lecture, he put on the table a big glass jar. And then he started to put stones in the jar until he could get no more stones in the jar. All the students didn't know what he was doing. When he got the last stone in the jar and he couldn't get any more in, he asked the class, is the jar full? They said yes. He smiled and got out some small stones. And he managed to fit many of the small stones into the gaps between the big ones. So then when he couldn't get any more small stones in, he asked his class again, is the, is the jar full? And this time they said, no sir, we're on to you by now, I'm sure you'll get something more in there. <laughs> and he smiled, he got out some sand. And he poured the sand on top of the jar, he shook the sand, much of the sand found its way into the gaps between the big rocks and the small stones. Is it full yet? They all shook their head. He got water and poured it into the jar. Much of the water went in. When he could get no more water in, he asked the class again. He actually didn't ask the class again. When he could get no more water in, he said, What am I trying to prove? What is the point of this object lesson? What am I trying to demonstrate to you? And one of the class put their hand up and they said, Sir, it proves to us that no matter how busy our schedule, we can always fit something more in. <laughs> he said, no, 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 it was a business school. He said, no, 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 that's not, <laughs> that's not the point of the demonstration. The point of the demonstration is this. If you want to get the big rocks in, you have to put them in first. It was a story called Precious Stones. Whatever's really important to you in your life, please fit it in first. Otherwise, you'll never get it in. It was about priorities in life. So if you want to enrich your life, you've got to set priorities. What's really important to you in life? And so often, what's really important to us in life is not always money. You do need some money, but we need to have other priorities as well. Because you need your family life. You know, having a good relationship with your, with your husband or wife. Now having a good relationship with your children, you know, doing good things for the community, doing good things for yourself, being kind, being compassionate, helping in the world, keeping your precepts is important. If you realize the priorities in life, you can do many, many things. You can become much more efficient and much happier in life. For example, that even in business we waste so much time worrying and thinking about things. There's a story which I've told, which is, which is Buddhist in flavour, but it actually came from some Russian folktales in a book written by Count Leo Tolstoy, which I read as a student in Cambridge. It was a story of the Emperor's Three Questions. It was a wonderful story to be able to understand how to enrich your life and how to make the life good. And it was such a powerful story. It has uh, like a, another story in the end, which I will tack on after I told you the Empress Three Question stories. This Russian emperor, many, many centuries ago, wanted to get some philosophy, some religion in life. He didn't like ordinary religions because he thought they were a bit dry and dead and too serious. 
That's why if ever you come to our temple in Perth, we're so disorganized. If you don't like organized religion, come to us. <laughs> we're disorganized religion. But he wanted to find out his own religion. So he decided that if he could only have the answer to three questions, then he would have all the religion he needed in life to live a happy, a worthwhile, a precious life. And those three questions were this. Number one, when is the most important time? Two, who is the most important person? And three, what is the most important thing to do? If you could have the answers to those three questions, wouldn't that be good for you? So the answer to the first question, when is the most important time? When is the most important time? Now, now is the most important time. We all know that, but we forget it, don't we? When you've had an argument with your wife, when is the most important time to say sorry? Now, don't wait for the argument to fester, because if you allow it to fester too long, you find you can't live with your wife anymore. You can't live with your husband. And it's not enriching your life, it's just enriching the lawyers. <laughs> so now's the most important time. If you want to tell your... Um, your oh, no, cup of tea. There you go. Now's the most important time to give them like a cup of tea. That's another cup of tea. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> And now is the most important time to say thank you very much as well. <laughs> so if anyone does anything kind for you, now is the most important time to tell your parents how much you respect them. To tell your children how much you care for them. So often, isn't it the case in life, we never tell each other at the right time how much we mean to each other? You know, when my father died, I felt guilty. Because as a young man, I used to like playing my Jimi Hendrix records. He used to like Frank Sinatra. I always won because Jimi Hendrix was much louder. <laughs> when he died, I was only 16. I felt so sad. I felt guilty. That all the things which I'd done you know, as a son to my father, which I shouldn't have done. And all the things which I should have said, how much I loved him, how much I cared for him, how much I respected him. And when he was dead, it was too late. They always taught me how important now is. Now is the most important time. So whatever goodness you want to do, do it now. Sometimes the opportunity doesn't come again. That's actually enriching your life. Don't put good things off till tomorrow. Only put bad things off till tomorrow. <laughs> But who is the most important person? Now this is the interesting question. If you know the answer to this, because you've heard me speak before, be quiet. Shh. Who is the most important person? I, yourself. All of those who think oneself is the most important person, put your hand up. Have the courage of your convictions. Because you are all wrong. <laughs> That's not the right answer. It's not oneself. That's not the right answer. The most. This was very, very powerful. This is the heart of the Empress Three Questions. The most important person is the one you're with. Whoever that is. That was so powerful when I read, read that. And I contemplated that for days. 
Because sometimes, in my experience, I've been with, say, a lecturer at university, asking them questions, and I felt they wanted to get rid of me. <laughs> I was only a small student, I had more important things to do. I was important to them. That's why they never listened. Sometimes you go up to a loved one. You know what it's like sometimes as a child, you went up to your parents, you had something important to say, but they never listened. Because at that moment you weren't important. Or as a husband and a wife, you've got something important to say to your husband, and he's not really listening. He's thinking, here she goes again. Why doesn't she shut up? Doesn't she know I'm busy? Doesn't she know I'm tired? <laughs> My goodness, she's so insensitive. But listen, I'm sure each one of you have tried to talk to someone and you know they weren't listening. That in that moment you weren't important to them. If you know the answer to that second question, it makes all your relationships with your husband, with your wife, with your children, with your parents, even with your business clients, so much more rich and so much more profitable. Even when you're with a client, if you can say to them in your heart, they are the most important person in the world, they will know it, that you care about them, you're listening to them, and my goodness, your business will prosper. You'll be listening to them fully and they will like to do business with you. So that's a wonderful business slogan. The one you're with is the most important person in the world. But very often, you're with nobody at all. And then who are you with? Then you're with yourself. That's why, who is the first person you say good morning to in the morning? You. I always say that, good morning me, here I am again. <laughs> Who's the last person you say good night to? I say good night to me. Good night, Ajahn Brahm, have a good sleep. <laughs> That's the first person you see in the morning. That's the last person you see at night. Most of the day you're with yourself. And that's why you, most of the time, are the most important person. And what's the most important thing to do? The answer was to care. How you care, exactly how that manifests in your speech and actions, can depend upon the situation. But the most important thing to do is to care, which is between being caring and being careful. Now, I told that story, the Empress Three Questions, at a school many, many years ago. A few years afterwards, I got an invitation to give the keynote speech at an education seminar in Perth, where they had all the headmasters and headmistresses, all of the, the people in the hierarchy of the education department, and I was to give the keynote speech. I didn't know why. And when I walked into the auditorium, one of the organisers came up to me and they said, Do you remember me? And that's a very dangerous question. <laughs> and so I decided to keep my precepts and be honest. I said, no, I don't. She laughed. And she told me that seven years previously, I'd gone to her school where she was headmistress and told the story of the Empress Three Questions. And that had changed her whole life. A few weeks later, she resigned. And she started a program, an education program, in Western Australia, designed for the street kids, the child prostitutes, the people living on the streets, the drug addicts who weren't going to school. 
the people who had dropped out of the education system. And the whole program was based on the Empress Three questions which I had told her seven years previously. She went to see those kids on the street, teenage prostitutes, young drug addicts. And when she started talking to them, she always remembered that they are the most important people in the world, the one you're with. And a wonderful thing happened. Each one of those children realized that someone was respecting them, that someone was giving them importance, probably for the first time in their life. They felt that someone cared. And because she gave them importance, they're the most important person in the world for them, she could listen to what they needed and getting all of that information from those kids. She tailored the education program to suit them. When I gave my keynote address, it was followed by two of the children who had been on that program and were surely to go to university. And on my goodness, they gave the keynote address, not me. They said what they'd been through. They said they were living on the street. One was a boy, one was a street prostitute who was now going to university. Saying that that was the first woman, the first person they met who made them feel important, who they knew cared for them. And that's how they responded. And it was a wonderfully inspiring event to see how something like the Empress Three Questions, which is basic Buddhism, basic Christianity, basic Islam, whatever, how that can change the lives of people struggling in our society, how it can change the lives of ordinary people. My goodness, if you put into practice the Empress Three Questions, now is the most important time. In Buddhism we call that mindfulness in the present moment. The one you're with is important. Give them importance. Listen to them with everything you've got. If it's your husband and wife, don't think that here she goes again. Don't think that why doesn't he shut up? Please give them importance. And if you give them importance and care, you'll always be able to communicate. When you communicate, most of the problems of life will disappear. You'll be happy, you'll be well. Isn't it important for you, your marriage? That's why that when I do marriage services for Buddhists, because I know that if they get into trouble, I'm the one that has to counsel them. I make sure that I teach them life first of all, first of all so I don't have to work so hard. I don't know why it is, you know, that people come to monks for marriage counselling. I've never been married. <laughs> why do they come to me? <laughs> but I do it anyway out of compassion. And I've always told, this is one of Ajahn Chah's teachings, he said, if you're going to be a counsellor, you've got to be like a dustbin. So you've got to allow people to dump all their rubbish in you. All their marriage, their financial problems, their personal problems. So I just listen here, yes, 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 yes. Just receive it all and be a dustbin. But he said, if you're a counsellor, make sure you're a dust. This is the most important part of being a counsellor, being a listener. You have to be a, a, a dustbin with a hole in the bottom. <laughs> so you don't keep anything. <laughs> so it just goes in, and when you walk away, you leave it there. You don't take it with you. So that's <laughs> being a dustbin with a hole in the bottom. That's being a good counsellor. So when there's people 
you know, who are having trouble in marriage, I always teach them Buddhist principles, like a forgiveness. I've been telling people a lot this recently, why is it that you spend so much time, so much care choosing your partner in life? Sometimes you go out with them for months, sometimes years, before you decide to get married. You spend more time choosing your partner than you do choosing your house or car. Some people even test drive before marriage. <laughs> but even, even though you spend so much time choosing your partner, you can't love them unconditionally. But you don't spend any time choosing your children. You don't even know whether they're going to be a boy or a girl. You don't know how they're going to turn out. But even though you don't choose your children, you will love them unconditionally for life. Why is it you can't love your husband for life? <laughs> or you can't love your wife unconditionally? Now really, if we want to live a happy life together, a rich life together, we have to learn you know, some of the tricks of how to live at peace together. This morning in the BTF, I was telling one of Ajahn Chah's famous stories of the chicken and the duck. If you want to know how to live happily as a married couple, listen carefully. A couple had just been married and one evening after dinner they went for a nice walk in the forest together. And in the forest they heard a sound. Quack, 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 quack. And the husband said, oh listen dear, that's a chicken. And the wife said, a chicken? Are you crazy dear? That's a duck. And he said, no, no darling, that's a chicken. She said, it's a duck. He went quack, quack again. There you are, it's a duck. He said, no, that's a chicken. She said, it's a duck. He said, it is a chicken. And she raised her voice and said, that is a duck. D-U-C-K duck. Got it? And he said, it's a chicken. And she remembered why they got married. And so she looked him in the eye and said, I'm sorry darling, you're right. It is a chicken. And it went quack quack again. And they held hands and they had a lovely walk all the way home. Wasn't that a wise woman? The moral, <laughs> the moral of that story is, who cares whether it's a chicken or a duck? Isn't it more important that a couple have a lovely evening together in love and harmony? That's the first point. That was a smart woman. Now, the last time I told that story a few days ago, it was a woman who said it was a chicken. This time it was a man who said it's a chicken. In order to keep gender inequality, I always change it around from one story to the next. <laughs> Although they get into big trouble these days. So that's the first thing. But who cares? Isn't it more important that they have love together? How many of your arguments at home, you married couples, are all chicken and duck stuff? Small things, unimportant things, which get so upset about. And the second thing, have you ever been wrong? 
even though it went quack quack. You know, it could have been a chicken impersonating a duck. Maybe it was a genetically modified chicken. Clone. So we think we're right, and sometimes we're wrong, don't we? I'm going to make a confession. Make a confession. I made this confession some years ago. You know there's been many scandals with monks? Many scandals? I'm going to confess now that many years ago I spent some of the happiest hours of my my life, some of the happiest hours of my life in the loving arms of another man's wife. We even kissed. It was another man's wife. That woman was my mother. <laughs> I spent some of the, I spent some of the happiest hours of my life we kissed. I was a little baby at the time. And she was another man's wife, wasn't she? My dad's wife. Now the reason I told that story you can think, oh my goodness, Ajahn Brahm's broken his precepts. <laughs> How easy it is we judge people when we don't listen to the full story. It could have been a chicken impersonating a duck. That's what we mean. Sometimes you never know the full story. <laughs> you know, when I first told that story in Perth, it was a time when there's lots of scandals. A couple of people went for the door. I had to tell them very quickly before they gave up on me. <laughs> See, it's so easy to judge, isn't it? So... <laughs> About a month ago, in Perth, we were having a fundraising ceremony, and a woman came up to me, and she reminded me I had performed her marriage ceremony 15 months before. And she came to thank me for saving her marriage. Because she said for about nine months, she was always arguing with her husband, but the argument was always one-sided. She would argue, she would complain, he'd just stand there. You know, like men are like. He'd just stand there and she'd argue, she'd complain, he'd just stand and smile. He would never argue back. After about nine months, she got so frustrated, she argued with him, aren't you concerned about our marriage? Aren't you concerned about the problems and difficulties? We don't discuss them. Why are you just standing there whenever I get angry like this? And she told me her husband just said two words. Chickens, ducks. And then she suddenly remembered the story which I just told you, which I told at her marriage. And then she said, Oh my goodness, husband, you're far more spiritually advanced than I am. You remembered the story, but I didn't. And from that time on, she remembered the story, so they never had an argument since. Isn't that wonderful, how marriages can be saved by chicken and ducks? (laughs) So this is actually enriching your life. Isn't that made common sense? That's why so much of religion is like common sense. But we need to be reminded of common sense so we don't make mistakes. It's all about compassion and kindness. It's all about acceptance. You know that these days in the West and here in Malaysia, many people commit suicide and get depressed. That's why I tell the story, another story of Buddhism, of compassion, of acceptance, of wisdom, so we overcome our, our depressions. This is one of my favourite stories of my brick wall. In my monastery in West Australia, 19 years ago when we started it, we didn't have any money. We were in debt to buy the land. And it was 
a big block of land with no facilities at all. The very first night I had to sleep out under the trees, I learned what it was like to be a kangaroo. It was so cold. And because we had no money, any donations which we got, we could only buy building materials. As for builders, we had to learn ourselves how to build. Remember, I was a theoretical physicist before. I never done building before. Now I had to learn how to mix concrete, how to lay bricks, how to put on a roof, how to do plumbing and electricity. I learned the whole lot. We used to call our, our monastery the BBC, the Buddhist Building Company. <laughs> now, when you lay bricks, it's not an easy thing to do. You put some mortar down, you put the brick on top, and to make it level, you have to tap down a corner. When you tap down one corner, another corner goes up. So you have to tap that corner down, then it goes out of line. So you have to tap it back into line again, then the first corner goes up again. It takes a long time to get that brick level, but I had all the time in the world. I was so patient, so I wasn't being paid. <laughs> so when I finished my first brick wall, I took care of every bit brick was right. When I finished the wall and stood back to look at it, to my great horror, to my great dismay, to my great suffering, in the building industry, when we make a mistake on a person's house, we call it a feature. <laughs> and we charge our clients a couple of thousand more dollars extra. <laughs> I thought, isn't that wonderful? Because your mistakes, they're really features of your life. That's actually where you learn. And so we allow ourselves to make mistakes as long as there are only two for every 998 good things we do. And as human beings we do much more good than bad. When we can admit our mistakes and allow our mistakes and see the good things as well, then we are happy, we're enriching our lives. It means we can forgive. The reason why we can forgive is because we see there's other good qualities in that person, not just their faults. If all we see is bad qualities, then we'll never be able to forgive. If all we see is our own bad qualities, we feel guilty. We don't think we deserve forgiveness. The simile of the brick wall is remembering all your good qualities as well as the bad qualities, so you can forgive. Sometimes there's always a few bad things which happen in life. To finish off this talk, so I'm going a bit over time, even in the time of death, one of the times of life which is for many people so hard to bear. Not only do I tell jokes at funerals, but I also tell meaningful stories. This story is from my own father's death. As I already mentioned, he died when I was only 16 years of age. When he died, I never cried. At his funeral, I never felt sad. To this day, I've never felt grief for one moment that my father died. You know why? Because I had a Buddhist attitude to life and death. To explain it, I give a story from my own life growing up in London. As a young man, I loved music. All types of music, from rock music to folk music to jazz to classical music. And growing up in London was a wonderful place if you loved music. I saw some of the great orchestras in the world, some of the great bands, some of the great musicians. I saw Led Zeppelin's first concert. 
Once I went to a pub in North London, and there was a band playing. Only six of us turned up to watch, and the lead singer was called Rod Stewart. Only six of us watched him. They still play. It's a great place to grow up if you love music. But I always remember when the concert was about to end, we'd all stand up and clap and shout for more. Very often, the orchestra or the band would carry on for a while and play a little bit longer. There'd always come the time when the orchestra had to pack up their instruments and go home, and so did I. I always remember the night time in London. It's always been cold. It always seemed to be drizzling with very fine rain. It wasn't neither raining nor not raining. It was halfway in between. It was miserable. It was cold, gloomy, and wet as I went outside those concert halls. But even though I went out into the gloom, never once did I feel sad that the concert was over. Never once did I feel upset the music had ended. After a great concert, I always thought how lucky I was to have heard such wonderful and inspiring music. All that music was running through my mind as I walked home into the cold, gloomy, wet London night. I was inspired with gratitude. What a great time that was! What a marvelous performance! And how lucky I was to be there at the time. And that is exactly how I felt when my father died. I was clapping at the end for more. He did actually come very close to dying many times, and we managed to to clap him for many encores. <laughs> and when he died, in my heart, what a marvelous performance that was, Father! What great music that was! What a great time we had! How lucky I was to have been at the time. I never felt sadness. I felt inspiration and gratitude of having known my father. It's a different way of looking at what's been taken away from us, because we remember what we've had. Not just seeing the two bad bricks of a death, but seeing the 998 good bricks of all the days you've known that person has now passed away. Like a wonderful concert. Knowing people, knowing your friends and loved ones, is a great inspiration for you. So this is how we can enrich our life, even in the time of death. All the stories which I have told this evening, no matter if you are a Muslim, a Christian, a Hindu, or a Jew, or a Buddhist, you know what my name means, Brahm. It's B for Buddhist, R for Roman Catholic, A for Anglican, H for Hindu, and M for Muslim. Brahm. <laughs> And no matter what religion you are, all these stories I hope will enrich your life. This is not empty religion which just teaches theories and things which you can't believe or you can't actually make sure are true. These are things which make your life happier and more meaningful, enriching life. With stories like how to deal with death in the simile of a concert, how to deal with depression with the simile of a brick wall. Why to keep in precepts means you're free from so many dangers. All these stories to help you enrich your life. The story of the Mexican fisherman, so you know what's important, how much you really need in life to be happy. 
and destroy priorities. And most importantly, maybe, chickens and ducks. So you never get into argument with your loved ones and friends. Its friendship is much more important than being liked. So I leave those stories with you this evening to enrich your life, to give you greater happiness and peace. So there's more happiness in the world no matter who you are, no matter where you go. Thank you.